Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof the Podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's podcast, human beings take an incredible 25 years to fully mature. Why is that? And why are we such an outlier in mammals? Uh, We'll be talking about that in a bit. Uh, First, though, it's time to look back at some of the week's science news. And joining me to discuss are Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and from ICRAC, Dr. Fergus McAuliffe. Our first story, Shane, is about a radio telescope on the moon. Yes, uh, NASA are going to put a large radio telescope on the moon. I I think this is incredible. Um, Now, I'm not talking about a big, like, dish that we we often think of when we think of telescopes instead i'm talking about four rather simple wire antennae each one just being four kilograms uh, each so there's sticking wires into the surface of the moon and they're spread out from one another and this is a primitive um but yet it will be an effective radio telescope think um, about the most unimpressive structure you could possibly look at that's what we're talking about it's just like um, metal bars sticking up in the air. That's pretty much it. Yeah, but you can do science with it. And that, yeah, it's pretty cool. And it's only the beginning of a new era of radio uh, telescoping on the moon. So this one's called Ralsis, and it landed this week as part of the first commercial lunar lander, uh, landed near the uh, lunar south pole. And it's it's a prototype. So they're putting it on the near side of the moon. That's the side of the moon that that always faces the Earth. And it will do rather simple science, but they basically want to see, can they set up a, a, a telescope on the moon like this with the view to putting one on the far side of the moon in the coming years? So in 2025 or 26, uh, there'll be a rather large uh, radio telescope on the far side of the moon called Lucy, which is Lunar Surface Electromagnetic Experiment. And it would, um, it would uh, basically be in the most... Um, radio quiet part of the solar system. So um, the Earth produces a huge amount of, of radio waves and most of them from programs like this uh, to astronomers are rather annoying because they interfere <laughs> with the electromagnetic spectrum. Yes, Jonathan, you, you are a pest to uh, <laughs> to many physicists in this area. Um, so they need to look out into space and do so in a, in a quiet uh, way. So they're going to the far side of the moon. It's shielded from the interference from the Earth and they'd be able to look at really primitive things. Um, they'd be looking at the early universe. They'd be looking at the the birth or the, the creation of the first stars and the so-called dark age that existed in the universe before stars were created. Um, the closest thing that you could uh, get to this is the LOFAR uh, telescope array, which Ireland is part of. So if anyone were to go to Burr Castle in County Offaly, they might want to go and see the, the modern telescope that's there. It's run by a bunch of Irish physicists and it's called LOFAR. And it too is a series of rather unimpressive looking antennae stuck in the ground. But yeah. they're connected through a, a series of, of pipes and, and various different things to other uh, institutes right across Europe, making an almost continent-sized telescope that's able to look out into space and understand things. Yeah, that, that was my, my question um, for you, Shane. Could we add the moon to this using a wireless link or is that just i mean i know the amount of data that these things take in is pretty staggering it's probably not possible to add an extra point to the telescope on the moon just yet 
I'd imagine it's not, but I would never underestimate the capacity of uh, yeah, people to, to, to like, you know, overcome the engineering challenges. Like if you can build a constant size telescope, who knows, maybe one day in the future, they might be able to. But the, the best plan right. at the moment is to have like tens of thousands of these antennae on the far side of the moon that together would make a massive, you know, a telescope looking out into space. I just keep thinking of the Death Star from Star Wars for some reason. Yeah. I don't know why. Uh, very cool. Um our second story, Fergus, is an interesting one because uh, it has to do with exercise and apparently women benefit more than men. Yes, this is a really intriguing study that's after coming out from the Cedars-Sinai Institute in the States. And so what we've known all along is that historically women will lag behind men in terms of how much time they can give to exercise and how much um, what's described as meaningful exercise that they carried out. So this particular study looked at over 400,000 adults from 1997 to 2019. So it's a really, really big study and it tracked them in terms of the amount of physical activity that they did. So the amount of time, um, its intensity and the type of physical activity. And it was a 50-50 gender split on the, on the people taking part. And as expected, what it found that people who were active versus inactive, irrespective of gender, had a benefit in terms of their life expectancy and other health outcomes. Yep. So that's the good news is that if you're exercising, um, it's good. But the intriguing news is that the mortality risk for women was reduced more than men. So active women had a 24% reduction in, in mortality rate compared to a 15% um, mortality rate reduction for men compared to those that were inactive. So what does that mean in practical terms? So, so if we if we think about it, so for for uh, for a set amount of gain, a man um, will reach that peak gain um, if they if if he does about three hundred minutes of exercise a week, whereas for women it's much closer to, uh, to about one hundred and fifty minutes of exercise per week in terms of strength. So men would have to do about three strength sessions per week compared to women. Um, who will get that same benefit by just doing one session per week. So it's, so really there's this huge gender difference that has emerged as part of this study. That's amazing um, and quite surprising because they're pretty significant differences. You know, sometimes we, on this program, you know, the difference of one or two percent, but that's actually really significant. Um, is this measured by self-reporting how much exercise each did? And that's the only question I might have about this. Is it possible that when you ask a man how much exercise they do, they over-exaggerate and that women underestimate how much exercise they've done in a week? Or have they been tracking this using electronics? Yeah. And so this is the key consideration. This is all self-reported data. And as mm. we know, people are more likely to over-report the amount of exercise they're doing to say that they lifted heavier weights than they did. However, <laughs> I think a crucial part of this is that it only looked at what's described as leisure exercise. So going to the gym or running as opposed to, say, for instance, doing work around the house yeah. or carrying a child, things like that, which are in which are in their own right uh, forms of exercise. And I think on top of that, one of the differences that the, that the researchers speculate is that, um, and to quote one of the authors directly, is that women are not just small men, right? So if you, if you take, for instance, if you were to, li if you were to lift um, a 10 kilo uh, bag of potatoes out of the car and you are like a six foot four man versus a five foot four woman, the amount of energy and effort that the woman has to put in to, uh, 
to move that same bag of potatoes is much more. So relatively speaking, they may be able to reach uh, the amount of exercises needed because they fundamentally have a different type of body. Very good. Very good. Uh, all right. Uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on that, by the way. Does that make sense to you if, as, as a woman who works out or exercises or uh, a man, if you're in a couple and you both uh, work out, does that make sense? Uh, you can email us science at newstalk.com. Shane, our third story um, has to do with the universe's brightest object. I feel like we have a lot of these every couple of years. Like we're, con- we're constantly finding the brightest object, which I suppose is theoretically possible. But what is this? Uh, yeah, it's the brightest object in the known universe. Um, it is a quasar that's powered by a black hole that eats a, uh, the equivalent of the mass of the sun every day. Um, so, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, remarkable. It's 500 trillion times brighter than the sun. Uh, this, what? This, yes, 500 trillion times. So a trillion is a one with, I think, 12 noughts after it. Um, yeah, so... Yeah. <laughs> That's and insane. This, I mean, how, this object, how, how big is it? It's 12 billion light years away. So um, it's it's very far away. And yeah, how, it, it is pretty big. So um, let, let me explain what it looks like, right? So a quasar is basically something called a quasi-stellar object. So it's, it's basically a big spinning disk of material. And it's really bright because it's been pulled into, through forces of gravity, into a supermassive black hole. And as a result of the massive gravitational forces that are on it, all of the material in the quasar is hitting off um, um, you know, other bits of itself. And that's giving out, out incredible amounts of light and heat. So we've always known or known for a long time that quasars are the brightest objects in the universe. But now we found the biggest one. And uh, it, this disk, it's called the accretion disk, is seven light years wide. So that's half the distance <laughs> from our sun to the nearest star, which is Alpha Centauri. It's half that distance. So we're talking much, much, much bigger than the solar system. It's huge. Wow. Um, did, did we imagine that things uh, in the universe could be that big? Um, or is this a case of observation um, sort of matching expectation, but we ha- just hadn't found it before? I was thinking about that as I was reading the story. I was thinking, like, this thing's huge. And the, the scientists in Australia that led the story said it was, quote, hiding in plain sight. But the universe is enormous, right? Almost by definition, big, it is right, enormous. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty big. Um, and so, like, it just shows you how, how big it is, that something so massive that occupies such a tiny uh, point in the, in the night sky uh, lies there undetected for so long. It was first detected using a 2.3 meter uh, mirror telescope in the University of New South Wales. And it was confirmed then a little while later using a larger eight meter um, um, telescope called the European Southern Observatory, very large telescope. So they win the award for best named telescope. And yeah, uh, yeah I think it's incredible the, like that the, the serendipity of finding it. And then when finding it, that it is so big and so bright. And they were talking in the paper just about what a hellish place that must be like. Well, I mean, when we talk about things of this sort of size, this sort of mass, you do get to a point where it's absolutely impossible to conceive of it. I don't know if you ever watched one of those YouTube videos where um, you zoom in from, you know, zoom out from a planet and it shows you how big other planets are and how, and, and it, that, isn't a very useful tool. While it's fascinating, it's not a very useful tool to really understand how absolutely enormous the universe is. Yeah, um, and, 
and we're but, just a tiny little part of it. So you could either be like, oh, God, we're nothing. Or you could be like, yeah, we exist. You know, I think it's very philosophical. Yeah, I mean, I like it, it does get you. I mean, if you just contemplate for a minute how insignificant everything is that we hold so dear, it is like it is absolutely humbling. Um, our final story, uh, Fergus, is a nice one. Smiling makes you think other people are happier. Yeah, so if we if if we are feeling a little bit existential following the story we just talked about, this story is the antidote to that. So I feel like the tagline uh, or the tagline for it could be like the shocking effects of smiling. So to to understand this story, we have to go the whole way back to the 19th century in Charles Darwin and a French neurologist called Duchesne du Boulon, and he carried out a series of quite shocking and literally shocking facial experiments whereby he put electrodes onto people's faces and shocked them at um, a quite considerable shock. And then in Darwin's third book called The Expressions of the Emotions in Man and Animals, there were there were drawings of those shocking experiments because they wanted to get a sense of how facial muscles work and how they how they affect things like emotions. And what this particular study does, which was done out of the University of Essex, it replicates that but using a way lower electrical shock. So what they did is they took 47 people in and they um, they placed essentially sort of like four little stickers kind of either side of their mouth and those were collected um, connected to tiny little electrodes and then they put them in front of a computer screen and they either shocked them or they didn't. Now when I say shock I mean this this was described as feeling almost like a tickle okay so it's like like it's really really low and they shocked them for just half a second. And then they were shown a picture of an avatar and that avatar could be manipulated to be, you know, kind of neutral, slightly happy or slightly sad. So they were either shocked or not. And then they were shown a picture of an avatar and then they were asked the question immediately afterwards, is that avatar looking happy or looking sad? And what what they found is that if, if you were shocked into smiling, you were much more likely to recognize a happy avatar than if you weren't essentially so so like it's almost like you're mimicking kind of what you're seeing if that makes sense so so you're saying that when um the face is forced into a smile you tend to see people as happier yeah so you tend to see people as so you're you're more likely to recognize someone else smiling and you're also more likely to recognize a neutral face as being slightly happier than it actually is if that makes sense and which, which could be seen or, or interpreted as sort of a having a happier disposition generally, because uh, this idea that we smile because we're happy is, is interesting. But there is evidence to suggest that if you force people into a, a proper face smile, like a full face smile, not just the pencil between the two, but you have to actually give them a full face smile, that they will report themselves as being happier. And that actually by physically forcing your face into a smile actually makes you happier, which is a kind of a feedback loop, which is... Kind of crazy. Shane doesn't buy this. There's, no, there's like how, how could you have an avatar that looks happy? Happiness is a culturally mediated thing, right? Nah, no, but smiley or not smiley, in. don't be a don't be ridiculous. No, but, yeah. but to an extent, like I don't think you, like there isn't a unit of happiness. So, but I do think these things are interesting. But I I, I think that a lot of research tends to read into it because the extrapolation of that is if you're not feeling happy, smile. And for a lot of people who are not feeling happy, telling them to smile is the worst thing. I I know you're talking about you're talking about long like I mean if we're talking about longer you know and more serious yeah. modes mm-hmm. of depression but actually if you're 
if if you're not dealing with a mental condition, and I've done this mm-hmm. myself when I haven't been feeling great, but it hasn't <laughs> been a serious thing, I found myself actually a little bit. So I'm not talking about like you know uh, huge mental changes for depression or, or suicidal uh, feelings or anything like at all. But actually, if you're feeling a bit, uh, um, mm-hmm. or you're about to go into something and you're a bit nervous, I find actually smiling removes some of that anxiety and removes some of that. That's just mm-hmm. for me when I when I'm I've seen going you to side stage. This explains a lot before John can go down. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Really interesting, though. And actually, there is one uh, potential practical application that came out of this, which kind of follows on from what we were saying there. So if you look at a disease like Parkinson's, so patients who suffer from Parkinson's can have reduced what's called spontaneous facial mimicry. So they find it harder to mimic. So so the researchers are saying if we can sort of allow a mechanism whereby they're able to stimulate their own faces to emotionally mimic, that may, you know, go some way to helping them as patients. I mean, as an idea... It sounds ridiculous, but I don't know, maybe. maybe. I mean, I don't know if that's a practical idea at all. It sounds like a, a clutching at straws thing to find some practical application for what seems like basic science to me, or, or at least some sort of research. I don't know. What do you think, Shane? I think that money in science research could be better spent than doing that. But I would like to see more shocking of people in science. I think we should go back to that. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and Dr. Fergus McCullough from iCrag, thanks for your time. Now, human beings are undoubtedly one of nature's most successful animals, but we've never claimed to be one of its fastest. Our approach is definitely more tortoise than hare. And interestingly, that also applies to the speed at which we grow up. Brenna Hassett is a lecturer in forensic osteology and archaeology. She is from the University of Central Lancaster, and she's the author of Growing Up Human. She joins me now. Uh, Welcome to the program, Brenna. What's the book about? Hi. So uh, the book is basically a collection of everything I wanted to know about why human babies are so weird, starting from our really very strange mating systems, monogamy, totally rare, animal kingdom doesn't do it, to um, the fact that, you know, we can... We can really be children for a very long time indeed. Um, so I set out to research it and the book was the result. <laughs> we don't, don't we have monogamy in, in other animals? We do, but mostly birds. Monogamy is a really, right. really ridiculous idea because it requires a lot of investment. But that's kind of the theme with humans is that if we can sort of pour money into it, we're very, very into it as a species. Yeah, I mean, I was... Um you, you're kind of saying that the weird thing about humans growing up. I, I when I googled it because I had to kind of Google it to to get a rough age. Um, I was surprised to hear that humans don't mature until they're 25. Is that right? That seems quite late. I think. Um, well, it depends on your criteria. So obviously, you know, we've got legal criteria, we've got cultural criteria. You know, you could have a bar mitzvah, or you could have a quinceanera, or you could have all these, you know, cultural things. Um, but if you wanted to talk about biology, uh, you could say, well, um, you know, is is growing up the age you first reproduce, or is growing up when your skeleton finishes growing? There's a bit of your skeleton right where the clavicle—that's your sort of, you know, collar connects to your sternum that doesn't really finish till you're about 32 33 what (laughs) so actually growth is sort of a difficult thing to guess in you know uh are we if you're living in your dad's basement at 40 you still a kid questions open yeah 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 um uh, but uh, i mean even you know, from a biological point of view compared to other animals and other primates we 
you know, humans do take a very long time to to get going, right? Because and certainly to be able to fend for ourselves, which I think, you know, is probably one of the one of the markers of maturity, right? Yeah, I like to think of um, childhood as basically being the bit where other people are investing in you, uh, and then right. you know, growing up is when you're doing the investing in other people. Doesn't have to be your own kids, but you're probably paying out somewhere. But right. definitely, um, our childhoods are longer proportionately than really we ought to expect. So if you think we've got maybe 25 years kind of as kids, that's about the same length of time something the size of a bowhead whale takes. We are much smaller than a bowhead whale. Also, a bowhead whale is going to live till 300. We're not. That means yeah. we've got a really long childhood compared to other animals. Why is that? It's really interesting. So I think, you know, the, there's a very short answer, which is we need a lot of time to learn to be a better monkey. There's a very long answer, which is science and human evolution. You know, and my, my job as a biological anthropologist is to really think about the sort of scientific answers and to trace it down um, through fossils and things. We can actually see that primates in general have pretty long childhoods social species, animals that need a lot of time to basically learn the rules of their societies because they need to depend on other people, they need to make friends, alliances, they actually need a lot of time to learn that stuff. So another social animal that has a long childhood is a crow, not a primate, not even a mammal. Um, but that, that sort of learning to be a better monkey seems to be a big theme with our relatives, the primates. And who took it to the biggest extreme? That was us. Uh, and why do we do that? I mean, it seems like it'd be much better to get up, get out and get going for yourself and not be dependent on adults who might be killed by other adults or, you know, may not make it as long as we need them to, to look after us. Well, I think that's that's sort of a big biological question. So you, you can sort of think about animals, you know, in in the bad old days where everything was black and white. We had animals that um, had, you know, their reproduction was hard and fast, as many babies as possible, and you just might as well keel over afterwards. So your octopus, your spider. Um, so it's a sort of shotgun approach. The more babies, the better, but you're not going to put any money into them. You're not going to invest in them. And then mm. there's sort of uh, the idea that there are other animals that have gone exactly the opposite way. They're going to pour a ton, a ton of money, money, investment, time, energy, calories, food into growing one or a very low number of offspring. And one of the things that seems to sort of uh, decide uh, which of these strategies you choose, and we went really, really extreme on this sort of investment strategy, is how secure your environment is, how in danger you are in your environment. So there's a sort of idea that evolutionarily, we've sort of been pushed in a bunch of directions that have edged us towards needing to be a social species, the way we get food, the way we reproduce, the way we sort of go about our daily lives requires a society. And we got to learn right. how to live in it. So we need that social animal time. And um, we don't seem to be in massive danger. All the saber tooths are extinct. <laughs> and one of the things that, um, you know, we, we can do is really pour investment into these incredibly demanding babies that we seem insistent on having. Yeah, I mean, I have two of those. I kind of think that was a bad idea, personally. Um, I mean, how we grow is odd, right? How babies grow in the womb and have these giant 
uh, awkward skulls. Like that whole thing is is quite unusual as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the things that um, I find really fascinating is that. Uh, you know, you need to reproduce a species in order for that species to succeed. And humans have some really unique barriers to doing that, which is that we have a lot of conditions that will basically kill us on the way to reproduction. We have sort of some specific adaptations, uh, particularly in our placentas, um, that allow our babies to be just that much more demanding our babies have a little bit more hormonal sort of chemical control over their mothers and can do things like demand more sugar, demand more food. And this is what gets you... You make it sound like something active. <laughs> well, I'm not sure the baby's completely conscious. They are in utero. It's, yeah. it's probably just a, a sort of a process. But um, the babies... Because that, that would have been... That, I mean, that would have been very unusual. They're sort of yanking the, the cords, uh, the, the bell rings. More sugar. Maybe. No, but it's a good metaphor, I think. Um, you know, and th it's exactly that sort of demand that leads to conditions like preeclampsia, diabetes, gestational diabetes, that other species don't really experience, except for guinea pigs who God knows why. Um, but actually, scientists know why. It's just complicated. Um, but it's, it's you know, that we, we have these babies that demand so much, and then they grow to a size where you get um, what I would call the sofa in a stairwell problem, where yeah. human birth is actually pretty uniquely <laughs> difficult. Because um, yeah. we got some sofas that are a little too big for the stairwells, we are trying to get them out. And that's... Yeah, I mean, I mean uh, when you look at a, a horse, it shouldn't be as easy as that, but it is. If you see a horse give birth, it just slides right out there. Yeah, and it's got, um, you know, two more legs, so. And it's ready to go. It's, re you know, that horse is fully cooked. Um, of course, it's a foal. Uh, I, I just want to say that because otherwise people will be texting in. Um, so the actual process, though, by the all the little mini bones stick to uh, the, each other and create big bones, that is fascinating to me because... I hadn't really thought about it at all until my son damaged his growth plate. And, and the consultant said, yeah, it's a problem with his growth plate. And I said, what the hell is that? Like, how have I at 47 years old not heard of a growth plate that is a significant part of a body? Oh, no. Oh, well, I'm, I'm very sorry for him. I have a lot of sympathy because the, the top bit of my elbow got knocked off in childhood. I'm fine. I'm sure he will be, too. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things that uh, since a lot of my sort of day to day life is going around and looking at skeletons, uh, digging them up and things like that, you know, um, I think of the skeleton as pretty obvious, but actually it's not at all. Uh, if you want to make an animal bigger, you're going to need to grow its bones. Fair enough. However, our bones, um, it's quite hard to sort of grow something in its perfect final form. So what we have is almost like, think of like an iron pipe or a plumbing pipe that's got two screw caps on the end. Yeah. You don't want to put the screw caps on too tight if that iron pipe is still expanding because it'll shut off growth. So those caps, we call them epiphyses, that's the scientific term are present on all of your long bones. So your femur, your, you know, your shin bone, your humerus, all your arms and legs are getting longer all the time when you're growing, but the end bits aren't fused off. Those are your growth plates. And they are particularly easy to injure if you are doing something active and childlike, end up landing on your wrist or your elbow. You can, you can pop those growth plates out of place. Right. And, and so like basically underneath the cap, the growing bit happens and the cap has to be sort of loose because if it was solid, you wouldn't, I mean, because these bones have to take all of our weight and all of our running around while they're growing, which 
I suppose the growth the growth plate allows for that, does it? Yeah. So it's it's basically uh, so your bone is hard, mineralized. You know, you've all you've all seen a bone. It's hard. You wouldn't want anybody hit in the head. Um, but there's a lot of um, sort of cartilaginous tissue that gets involved in these structures to sort of um, that eventually the bone will sort of harden and mineralize, and all your sort of mineral stuff will build up this bone into a proper bone. But it's in a kind of transient form. It's actually something that sort of, um, you can almost see the disease of rickets, which is something we study as archaeologists, is a disease where your bones weren't strong enough. They were still in that cartilaginous form. So this bowed leg disease that we associate with, you know, Victorians right. and stuff. From the pressure. Um, from yeah, the... it's from the weight of the body yeah. deforming those bones. Right. So it's, um, but it's this whole growth schedule, this whole sort of win the screw caps you know, attach is actually super important to people like me because it's how we tell age in the skeletal record, in the fossil record. We can actually look at, you know, what form is your growth cap in? How long is your bone? Is it attached yet? Has it fused? And we can actually work out, well, if we know your shoulder finishes 18 to 20, um, we can work out about how far you are towards being done growing. Right. Which is which is useful, of course, because skeletons are different sizes and that might be to just variability or it might be to a different species of homo or it might be to to the, the fact that they're growing at a different rate. So so by looking at these joints, you can figure out which which is which. Exactly. So the really nice thing is that we basically have multiple lines of evidence. So we've got your bones. We know they're growing. And then we have teeth. And I'm a little bit obsessed with teeth, so you'll have to forgive me. It's what my PhD All is. All archaeologists are. It's, the the extrapolations be. you guys make from teeth, I mean, quite frankly, are ridiculous. <laughs> the papers I read and you say, well, we know this. And the, the, it just seems like such an extraordinary leap. It's, uh, your field is, to me, honestly, the paleoanthropology and paleoarchaeology. Those two fields, they, they, to me, really do seem like, they just seem sort of um, clutching at straws. So, so <laughs> I, I'm going to say that now and you can defend yourself. No, I don't think that's entirely wrong. Um, I think, however, if you have teeth, you have hard evidence, 97% mineral. Um, your teeth uh, grow once and they grow really regularly. So your teeth are basically a fossil that sits in your mouth. And because they're lovely, grow once. If you chip a tooth, it doesn't grow back. If you break a bone, it grows back, you know. But your, your teeth, as these sort of fossils, they actually grow so regularly that if you give them to me as part of a scientific project, I will slice them in half, grind them down, put them under a microscope, and I will be able to find every day of growth in that tooth. I'll be able to count how many days that tooth took to grow. And this is exactly what we've done with hominid fossils in order to prove that we actually have a much longer childhood and that we've been evolving a longer childhood is that we can take a fossil like a Homo erectus, so this is a couple million years ago, and probably human ancestor, and we can say, oh, well, look at the skeletal growth. Look at those joints. They're not finished off yet. So we think, you know, if it was a human, it'd be about nine. Then we take the teeth we count up how long it took the teeth to grow, and we realize that nine-year-old Homo erectus is actually six. So Homo erectus took six years to do what it takes us nine years to do. 
Wait, okay. So you grind up the teeth and then you count the rings in the tree stump? Yeah, yeah, it's exactly like tree stumps. So um, I I take, uh, so basically it's called thin sectioning. So you take a diamond saw and you take a tiny little 200 micron slice out of the center of a tooth and it looks exactly like tree rings. So you know how trees have good year, bad year? There's actually little microstructures in there that are from the cells moving each day. So each day, each day, there's a daily record of growth in your mouth right now. Wow. I could laser That's it. Okay. That, ma- that makes me, that makes me feel like I can accept some of the claims made by your colleagues a little bit more <laughs> seriously then. Cause that, that, that I did not know. Um, so let, let's move on to, to the aging of, um, of, of bones for a second, because there's, there's a couple of other things that we do as we grow, which is odd. Like, for example, breastfeeding. We, we, um, as humans, we stop breastfeeding much sooner than other, other mammals. But, but that's probably a, a social and cultural thing that's happened in the last couple of tens of thousands of years, right? Well, it's probably both. So, I mean, you get you get a factor. So I'm, I'm here in the UK and it's something like 1% of women are able to exclusively breastfeed for six months. And that's got to be social. That's got to be, you know, reasons relating to work, to where you can breastfeed difficulties, because there are other groups in the world who can do 100% breastfeeding. But even if you, so if you go back to our teeth, yay, um, and you laser them and you zap them with an even, you know, stronger sort of laser and you put them in a mass spec and you get the chemical information, you can actually see when they were being breastfed. Um, we think that compared to our similar size grade ape relatives, actually, we've, we've been kicking infants off the breast earlier. So an orang, seven years. That's how long their kids are. And they're slightly smaller than us. So if we were just going to say, oh, well, there's a standard grade eight time, we should be breastfeeding till probably six-ish years, seven-ish years. However, there's really no data that shows either fossil record or ethnographically people who still live very sort of um, uh, well, lifestyles, well, lifestyles where they can breastfeed freely um, yeah. and don't have in, you know interference from the rest of society. Um it doesn't really go beyond four years. So that seems I'm to be I'm not some... surprised by that. <laughs> At some point, there's, a, there's the diminishing returns, right? Yeah. Um, although, obviously, you know, breastfeeding is hugely important. We all know that. But uh, at age seven, I think... Um, I think age seven seems to me to be a long time. Well, I, I mean, no one, no one has been able to ask the orangutan mothers what they think of it. But, um, I mean, they may, yeah, they may exactly. agree. And then the other question I wanted to ask you very quickly is about grandparents and and, and the existence of menopause. And, and I'm wondering what your take is on this, because, you know, biologically we see, um, and this is being, you know, just a cold about it for a moment. Biologically, we see women reaching an age in their uh, early 50s, late 40s, where um, they're no longer to, able to reproduce. And yet we have, you know, uh, grandmothers who stay around um, from an evolutionary point of view, for a long time, and have been for, you know, as long as we as long as we have records. Uh, so why why is that? Because it doesn't happen in other species, right? In other species, once you know, sexual maturation continues, and and that 
keeps going until they die. Is that correct? Pretty much. So um, the <laughs> it's us and the danger dolphins, which is my new favorite word for the orca. But uh, so killer, some types of killer whales, orcas, um, some big social whales, uh, and also possibly really well-fed chimpanzees, which is interesting, have grandmothers. So they thought there was no grandmothers in chimpanzees, that chimpanzees could reproduce until death. But it seems like actually chimpanzees may experience something similar to the menopause. That's that's new data, which is very exciting. And there's a couple of reasons that anthropologists sort of have put forward to why on earth we would have an animal that doesn't reproduce. The idea being that um, perhaps grandmothers add to evolutionary fitness in a way that doesn't involve them directly investing in their own children. So the grandmother hypothesis suggests that grandmothers are able to contribute right down the line. Um, They can invest in their children's children, for instance. They can help provide food, training, social information, stories about way back when, whatever it is that grandmothers do, baking, um, that they actually have an evolutionary role uh, that isn't just reproduction. The other one is actually that human uh, males have evolved to live very, very long lives and human females have picked up that longevity, but the sexual reproduction has to stop. Very, very interesting, and um, and lots of great stories there, which you um, will find plenty of in Growing Up Human. Uh, it's a book by Brenna Hassett. Brenna is from the University of Central Lancashire. Brenna, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. All right, it's time to look back at some of your comments from last week's programme. And last week we did a very special uh, edition of the show in which we went to the Galapagos, uh, which was a rather special trip. Aidan McKelvey producer joins me to chat about your comments how are you i'm good you say we went to the galapagos but i didn't get to go to the galapagos (laughs) but i did auditorily get to go to the galapagos when i listened to your beautiful work indeed indeed. so so kudos to you uh yeah no it was great it was a it was a really exceptional trip i went to dublin institute for advanced studies and which after i aired the documentary they told me it was for and not of which was absolutely mortifying but i've been calling them of for quite some time um, so there you go. It happens. Uh, so apologies. D- the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies have a team led by Chris Bean there, and uh, he is a fantastic volcanologist, even though, as you hear in the documentary, there are no volcanoes in Ireland. Uh, he was in UCD, now he's at Dias. And uh, I went over with some of them to uh, Isabella Island, uh, to the uh, Sierra Negra caldera, which is this enormous caldera. And I have to say, I kind of felt like when I was there, I kind of felt like it would be, you know, skipping over lava flows and stuff and it really wasn't uh, it was different and beautiful <laughs> at the same time but it was very different to what i imagined a you know journey into a, a caldera would be um there, there are areas where lava um is more flowy uh, but not where we were i kind of got the easiest hike we, they did the easiest hike on the first day which is still like you know we spent four or five hours in the heat um but like, uh, I also didn't have to traverse over the really hard rocks. So there's two types of lava there. One's pahoe hoe, as you heard, which is like the sort of, it looks like black rope, kind of just coiled up. And then the other one's ah-ah, and they're both named by the Hawaiians. And the ah-ah is like really, really sharp, really, really spiky. And uh, you have to go over like kilometers of it to get to where you're going. Luckily, I didn't have to do that for this trip. Yeah, good to avoid that. Does the Galapagos live up to its... Um 
his, it's billing. Like it's such it's, it's it's kind of one of those things. The expectation is so high. Mm. That part of me thinks you could only fail. But judging by the sound of the documentary, you were uh, in your element there. Well, look, I mean, the the thing about the Galapagos obviously is, I mean, the water is so clear, and the the abundance of wildlife is insane. You know, like when you go snorkeling, it's like holy crap. Um, there's something <laughs> everywhere, and there's seals going around you. There's all sorts of rays. There's amazing fish, and um, if you're lucky enough to dive, which I didn't mention in the documentary because it wasn't really on the trip and it wasn't really relevant, but I dived there twice, and I dived with these manta ray and. And when I say it's, I mean, it's just, it's really odd because they're about the width of a shed, you know, wider that, they're, you know, they go five meters wide. They're really, really huge animals. And uh, we were reasonably close to them. And like, it's very difficult to sort of describe what that's like. It's, it, it was so cool. But it, I mean, like, apart from them, you know, seeing the sharks nesting under the, uh, in the cave and uh, the seahorses, it actually, it was just filled with wonders. The town itself is kind of funny. You'd imagine somewhere that got so much money, uh, you know, from tourists would be spick and span and like all the businesses would be thriving because all you have to do is bring people there and stick them in the water. You know, it's, it's not technically hard um you know to cater for them but you know it, it's a bit shabby here and there and you know there's, there's places where there's you know there's old marine parts that are just sort of left out and you know it's kind of the sense of if you know it's you, you you know if you were going to a really expensive european destination you know it just would be more cared for and more curated so i guess it's you know it's still real in that way in that yeah. it's still a little bit dilapidated here here and there and there are people who, who live there as i said in the documentary but uh, so it's not a really, you know, you don't feel like you're, you're in this really touristy place except for all the tourists. Yeah, well, that's maybe kind of good in a way. I mean, also, you're obviously not going there for the town. The town is just a, a functional thing, really, when you've got that much wildlife and stuff around you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it was fab. And, and, the, and, the, and the, the hike with the team, the team were great. They were great, very tolerant of me. I, we, were, we went and they had these huge backpacks and the backpacks, like they had heavy things in them, like a bag of concrete and all the water you need to mix that concrete. And they had to descend the same wall as i did but i had to carry the microphone and record everything so i just didn't go with any of their gear so like i was just watching them like sweating and hefting all this heavy stuff for, like kilometers and look down this really steep um a, a volcano wall and i was like yeah that looks hard i'm glad it yeah, yeah no no i really have to carry this mic it's very delicate i can't possibly have any other weight on me. well you no wouldn't have got this <laughs> yeah. you know yourself when you're making a radio documentary you know the um the the sounds that you you get are, the, are the, really the part. So um, you know when you're going to travel to a place, you have to bring the sound of that place with you. And so the, I spent one day hiking with them, and the rest of the day was collecting sounds. And you know it's the crunch of the the, the branches under your feet. It's the sound of tortoises, um, you know, going through the leaves. It's the sound of uh, the waves on the shore, the the birds, and so on. So you're you're really sort of a, a noise collector for half of the time, and. Um, and, and and when those so you if you if you listen to the documentary at the end you'll hear the sound of these um these people um, singing and, and praying as I get very contemplative, and uh, I, I was it was like five o'clock in the morning and I heard that and I jumped out of my bed and I was like in my boxer shorts and I ran out and opened the door to see what the hell was the sound because I was like 
I have to have this in the documentary. And like I saw like maybe 20 people sort of slowly shuffling along the dirt road towards the church in a sort of a pilgrim and all together sort of doing the decades. And I uh, I was like, oh my God. So I, ran, I threw on a t-shirt and a pair of shorts and barefoot kind of followed them just respectfully at a distance, but still like just like, you know, some random dude barefoot following them down a dusty street, pointing a machine at them. And <laughs> because they were singing, they couldn't really say anything. And because it's, there's something holy and san, san, uh, like sanctimonious is a negative word, but you know what I mean? Like so, so, so holy about sacred. That, sacred about about this thing. They couldn't, they couldn't ask me what I was doing or to stop. So I kind of felt like, <laughs> I, I, I hope they were okay. I hope they didn't find it disrespectful. I did stay, you know, a reasonable distance away, but, but uh, I was kind of in a good place because they couldn't stop singing to say, who are you and what are you doing? But their eyes were very much saying that. <laughs> <laughs> the things you do for Future Proof, Jonathan. Yeah. Oh, well, look, I mean, very much it was a blessing. It really was a blessing. So we had a few comments on it. Cohen Verbruggen uh, from Geologic Google Survey Ireland said, brilliant program. Jeremy Carney said, loving this week's podcast. Your descriptions are making me feel like I'm there. The Galapagos sounds amazing. That's exactly what the point of collecting all those sounds and putting them together. If you saw on, on Twitter, you'll see there's about a thousand sounds that went into that hour of programming all stuck together. Michael Collins said the same. Wow, I love the show. Hope you bought a camera. Um, we did. And if you can look at my, if you look on my Twitter, um, you'll see lots of photographs from that. And just one more comment. Um, uh, we had a piece on plastic being linked to premature babies. It was uh, on Newtown a couple of weeks ago. Um, Dr. Ruth Freeman was telling us about it. Someone says, does drinking out of plastic bottles damage you? I buy mineral water in plastic bottles and I'm worried about tap water. Um, I, I would, you know, go for tap water where you can. Plastics are, any, any plastic bottle will shed microplastics. So it is, um, it is something, although they're generally considered to be very safe, but any piece of plastic will shed microplastics over time. So as much as you can avoid buying anything in plastic, I would do that. That's it from us on this week's Future Proof. Thank you to Aidan McKelvey, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more in your Future Proof podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.